Welcome back to, uh, yeah, I got an effing job with a liberal arts degree. We are super excited to have Dr. Lisa Bartolomeo from West Virginia University joining us today. And she has completed her, her bachelor's in Slavic and Russian studies at West Virginia University, master's in literature in Russian literature uh, from the University of Glasgow, Scotland, and a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Instead of continuing to read her bio, I'll let her talk about her various roles, but to say she has really, beyond teaching and engaging with students, has served in a lot of critical leadership roles at West Virginia University. University. So um, let me let me ask you just talk a little bit about some of what you've done there and welcome you to the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, Dean Crane. I'm excited to talk with your audience. And you can and, call me uh, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be presumptuous. That's all right. yeah. So I guess some of the leadership roles I've had, um, you know, were basically trying to give me a broad overview because I've had a bunch of different leadership roles in a bunch of different areas. Uh, So I feel like I'm in somewhat a privileged position to be able to see at both the 30,000 foot level and the 5,000 foot level, and then maybe the two foot level, how the sausage is made, which uh, isn't always pretty. But it is interesting, and it certainly has given me more of a perspective than I think many of my fellow faculty members have had. Um, You know, until I became faculty senate chair-elect, for instance, I didn't really understand the way policy was made, the way uh, decisions were made. I had very little knowledge of or understanding of our institutional board of governors, uh, had no idea what that meant. I was a little baby faculty member and I very quickly had to learn, uh, particularly because when I was elected faculty Senate chair, that came with a two-year stint as one of the two elected voting faculty members on our board of governors. So I was thrown into the deep end and had to sink or swim. Uh, so beyond that, I, I also worked closely with our president, President Guy. I saw that. And I'm, I'm very sure, interested in that. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to be careful not to get myself super fired. Smart. Uh, beyond the firing that I've already gotten, yeah. so uh, <laughs> I may I may pull a couple of punches, but I'm going to be I'm going to do my best to be open and and honest with your your listeners. Um, But I've also worked with uh, our senior international officer. Um, You know, I've helped. uh, I was one of the two people who basically worked on retooling our general education curriculum a few years back. Uh, You know, so I've I've sampled a lot of different pieces of a lot of different pies here at WVU. Right. You know, it's really interesting the roles you've had because I think you probably had the opportunity to see things um, like where power resides and what drives those decisions that oftentimes faculty aren't as aware of. Uh, And that's been uh, a big part of my learning curve and often disappointment, actually, in an administrative role. And three, I want to say, you know, we're grateful you joined us today because, you know, West Virginia University and what's happening there is, uh, I think, horrific. And we're all talking about, in fact, my council chairs, uh, beginning of the year, I sent an article to them to say, hey, let's make this something we talk about and think about in our own strategic planning. Um, And I think it's really important that people uh, hear about your experience and that you can share where you're comfortable, you know, how that's affecting you. And and we need to have a a more humane uh, perspective on these decisions and, and the impacts on people's lives. So thank you so much. I, I just want to reiterate on that. Sure. I mean, if, if any good comes out of what's happening to us here at WVU, that may be that other folks learn from what we've done, what we've tried to do, and, and hopefully leadership at other institutions sees WVU and what the leadership here has done as a negative object lesson, right. uh, as a path to be avoided, as opposed to, oh, yeah, we can do the same thing. Yeah. So hopefully... Yeah learn from our misfortunes well so maybe you know get right off the script right away here you know the but let me ask you 
this is one of the things I was thinking about because again, we're we're having a lot of discussions that are adjacent to what's happening where you are. And to what degree did your leadership or slash administration, you can pick uh, the word you want to use, you know, encourage or invite you into strategic planning and strategies to try to deal with declining enrollments? Um, or was this more abrupt than that? I guess there was some effort before the pandemic, very broadly and very high level to encourage units to come up with new ideas, um, to rethink old majors and old configurations and things like that. But then the pandemic happened, everyone got thrown for a loop and we came back. And I think everyone, at least among the faculty and staff, everyone was so nose to the grindstone. How do we get students engaged again after all the disengagement of the pandemic? How do yeah, we... Teaching got much harder, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. How do we just do our everyday jobs, right? And so I think that the tiny step toward this unit level strategic planning that we may have done before the pandemic basically got thrown out the window right. at that point, right. right? Or ignored, right? It wasn't that we, we said, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. It's just we had fires to put out and the strategic plan was not really a fire, and so I don't think any of us understood that, no, in fact, that's a fire too. Right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, it, after that, it happened very, very quickly. And I think that for someone like me who has had, uh, you know, I had an ACE fellowship and I got to work with President Pastides at uh, University of South Carolina and then provost, now president, Joan Gable. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to see how different institutions do things. And I, I think that I guess what I was expecting here, what I would have expected and what I would hope other institutions would do rather than what we did was to engage with colleges and units and fire up that strategic thinking that we had all been doing a few years ago. Um, and given the budget hole that we were in, which to be fair, President Gee and Provost Reed don't consistently say from day to day that it's a budget deficit that we're in and that we have to do what we're doing because we're in a budget deficit. Some days they say, oh no, we want to do this. We would be doing this regardless. Right. So we don't even get a consistent narrative there. But if, if they had come back to us and said, whoa, Nally, we're $45 million in the hole. It's all hands on deck. And to demonstrate that, to ask everybody to pull together, to ask everybody for buy-in, we're going to share the pain. And the people at the very top are going to take a 20 or a 25% pay cut. Right. The people who over $100,000 are going to take a 10% pay cut. Everybody else, two to three. And that would have people have done the math that would have bought us time for everyone in, in the colleges and the units to go back and to think with much more urgency, how do we retool? How do we use the resources we have now, or perhaps even fewer resources to really reach out to students, to really engage the community, the state, you know, for us in world languages, we were coming up with all sorts of ideas for partnership with K through 12, K through 12. We were, uh, my German colleague came up with this fantastic uh, partnership with our engineering school to, to do a, a sort of dual degree there. Uh, you know, people had ideas, people were ready to implement those ideas. And then the bottom fell out. And on August 11th, our department was informed that we were going to be entirely eliminated. Right. And yeah. at that point, we were all just honestly too stunned to, to really get a sense of how do we fight back? What do we do? Is there even a, a chance? Is it worth fighting back? Uh, or do we just lie down and die right now? Well, you're not, I'm not sure. Your question. Oh, no, that, that was great. And, you know, it, I always know it's a great answer because I have like eight questions afterwards I'm trying to track in my head. You know, it's such a gut punch. It's so demoralizing. And um, what I have seen in academic administration, 
I haven't heard the phrase used here, but my last institution, the phrase was never let a good crisis pass you. Never waste a good crisis. This is how some administrators looked at COVID. And I think this is happening, you know, with the debt that was caused by the, the leadership at the university, right? For the big yes. building. Um, yes. So are, are you familiar with Naomi Klein's shock doctrine argument? Um, somewhat. Yeah. So, I mean. Let's see if I can remember. Um, basically, using uh, manufacturing or using a crisis to impose changes that you want to achieve, like in you know, like in South America, a lot of privatization of public utilities, right? Um, it sounds like you know you're you're talking about how they're using different language. It sounds to me like um, would you think that there's a sort of a shock doctrine effect here? Like, oh, we have a crisis, so therefore we are forced to do that which we want to do anyways. To cut liberal arts, or am I being a little too radical here? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty but, radical. The thing too is, it's not just liberal arts, right? It's in engineering, it's in mathematics. Right. Yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. I, I mean, it, it is radical, but it is also something that some of my colleagues here have have expressed, right? Um, because we are in such a deficit of trust between the faculty and staff and the administration, um, a lot of people kind of attribute to the administration all sorts of nefarious purposes. And that that is one of them, that, that they've taken advantage of, uh, you know, the deficit of the post-pandemic, you know, knock-on effects of uh, some poor decision-making, including cutting taxes in our state right. that has contributed to a further reduction in state allocations to higher education in West Virginia. So, I mean, I think what you've said about taking advantage of a crisis, you know, I, I think there's probably something to that, but I also am not going to try to psychoanalyze President Gee or Provost Reed, um, you know, but I think that is definitely one reading of the text right. uh, that they wanted to, to do these changes. And, you know, to be fair, if we take President Gee at his word, he often says that when he's asked about it. You know, we're doing this because we want to reposition the university to be the land grant university of the future. But without actually defining or outlining what exactly that means, right, particularly right. given the traditional tenets of a land grant university, many of which are being left behind right. by cuts. Right, right. And I, I'm thinking here of a, a couple of your uh, uh, great quotes, right? And I'm going to read one here. And I can't remember where I got it from. It was um, the DA Online. Is that your student university yeah, paper? Yeah, the DA is our, our student newspaper, and it's been fantastic for holding administration's feet to the fire. Yeah, and that's what student journalists should do, right? It is. That's part it is. of what they should do. Um, so the, the quote from you uh, that I think is consistent with what you're saying here. The one saving grace that most West Virginia students had was the possibility of coming to WVU and being able to study the world and being able to do meaningful cultural education to help them see that the world is not just in these hills and hollers. And that that's what's written in the article. So, uh, But that there's much more out there waiting for them and that they have access to it. WVU is essentially cutting off that window to the world. I thought that was a pretty eloquent and precise statement about the danger of what's happening. Yeah, thanks. No, I, I think that's, for most of us, faculty and staff, I think that's what is really hitting us the hardest is we often have first-generation students who come from a county in West Virginia where there's one high school, right, where kids are bused in all over the county to one high school, and maybe there are 200 kids at that high school, right? That's how small the state is. That's how underpopulated the state is. And if you're someone who comes from that county, who comes from that tiny little high school where, you know, teachers are underpaid, they're overworked, they don't get the same kind of training, they don't have the same kind of intercultural competency resources. Maybe you have a couple of classes in Spanish, but you don't know what else is out there. Right. And when kids come to any university, but for West Virginia kids to come to West Virginia University, it takes them a little while to, to come to the big city, even though Morgantown is not a big city. <laughs> if, you're from, if you're from Mingo County or Wyoming County, it is a big city. 
And it takes them a little while to find their people. It takes them a little while to find their footing. And they might come in and not even know that Russian is an option for them to study. And that Russian literature is amazing, right? And Russian (laughs) literature is amazing. And that Russian fairy tales is a kick-ass class. One of your classes, Uh, yeah, right? Right, right. They, They don't know that. And unless they come in and they luck into an advisor who says, oh, hey, you're kind of interested, you you want to, maybe they're in the ROTC, right? Or you say you want to go and work in law enforcement or international intelligence and security, you should probably think about taking a language like Russian, right? And for Especially now, kids, right? Especially yeah. now, yeah. yes. When there's the largest land war in Europe since World War II, mm-hmm. you would think that more people would, would be talking about that. But for a kid who comes from who comes from a family where they're the first person to go to college in their entire family, maybe the first person to leave their county, uh, you know, that's pretty daunting. They think, oh, well, Russian seems hard. Or what would I do with that, right? They, they just don't have the context. They don't have the specifics. They don't have – their vision has been so obscured by the limitations of their – their backgrounds that they don't know even what the possibilities are out there. And so sure. It's not surprising that first year, first semester freshmen don't always take Russian 101. Right. And then if they don't take it until their second year, then it takes them a little bit longer to get through the major. It takes them longer to get through the pipeline. So, you know, of course we're not going to have as many majors in Russian as you have in history. Right. Right. Or even engineering sometimes, but the ones we do get, we hang on to tight. We hug them tight to us and they stay with us and they go out into the world and they use what they learn. Even if they're not using their Russian language skills every day, they're using the critical thinking skills. They're using their study of the area of politics, of the history, of the culture, of the literature, and that enriches their lives and their careers in ways that they weren't even capable of imagining when they were 19 years old. Yeah, no, absolutely. What a, you know, and what a great overall sort of summary of the benefits of different aspects of liberal arts. But, you know, um, gosh, again, several things I'm thinking of. One, literally two days ago, my class was talking about nihilism and I pointed them toward Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, right? So go read that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Perfect example. Yeah. But um, I should mention here too that I worked with a Jamie Olson who's at St. Martin's University and he translates Russian poetry um, and is a poet himself. But we uh, had exchange with uh, Russian faculty and students. There's a regular pattern of students going back and forth and that was just really rewarding and I could see where the students valued that. But you know the broader point and again we have discussions here like um, because you know so for me, languages are, are very low enrolled, low majored, and I'm struggling with like how to get more students to take French, right? Um, major in French. And so uh, so we have a conversation like, well, you know, do we have to have French at every, every university in the CSU system, the California State University system, of which there are 23 campuses? And my response, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of growing into my knowledge still, right? And the way you just talked about it helps me. It's like, yeah, but if they come here to do engineering and we don't have, say, French, there's no way that they make that discovery and that transition into, right? So we're, you know, because, you know, in the liberal arts, we are very dependent on off-ramping from other majors, right? And so that's my concern is, yeah, so maybe it's a small major, but that one student's going to, that's what happened to me. I took Russian studies. I was at Evergreen as an undergrad uh, on a whim and friggin' loved it. I mean, I love Russian literature, right? And uh, I'm referencing Russian culture and history all the time. And of course, I was veteran of the Cold War, so I've got that going on too. But yeah, we make a mistake and and we have a lot of those first-gen students, right, uh, who come in and they think I'm going to do this or that, and then they they just get into like class like yours, like Russian fairy tales, or and think, oh, I didn't even know this was a possibility. And we, you know, this this focus on applied and the gross national product, and you know, healthcare and engineering over, 
you know, in a more efficient type of, you know, the word is agile, right? Uh, education as opposed to more space for exploration is, is frustrating. And I think you make a strong case for why retaining majors like yours is crucial for that. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I've tried over the past, well, several years to think why don't more American kids come in from high school into college wanting to study a language, never mind wanting to major in a language. And I think part of it, I think there are lots of different parts of it. And some of it will vary according to red state or blue state or political atmosphere or what have you. But I think, you know, because the United States with our fantastic cultural imperialism has <laughs> almost our entire history just devalued learning any other languages. Whereas in every other country in the world, everyone from a very young age understands, oh no, this is important to do. And we have coasted on everybody else's willingness to adopt our imperial language if not our imperial measurement system right. and, and use that as the lingua franca of the world, right? And and we're not going to be able to coast on that forever. And I think the pandemic in many ways exacerbated that attitude because it cut us off and it atomized everyone so that we were in our little bubbles. And, you know, even if you were online playing video games with somebody around the world, odds are you were playing with them in English yeah, because you don't have any other language skills at your disposal, right? I've had that experience actually playing Halo, uh, people from sure. different parts of the world and speak. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> right. Right. No, no, no. I mean, I think, I think that the pandemic made it worse. I think also not to get political on your podcast, but I think also the Trump administration inevitably made it worse because the Trump administration was extremely xenophobic. Uh, anytime you have an America first philosophy behind a political administration, particularly a presidential administration, you're going to have fallout and the fallout will settle on international studies majors and language majors and for some reason, and this is something you as a Cold War person, you know, can probably speak to as, as well as I can, for some reason, even if we're having this political discussion that America first, learn English, English is the universal language and, and all of that, rather than turning that a little bit and saying, huh, but in order to be super successful in the United States, we need to be well-equipped to deal with, to challenge, to compete with China or Russia or Brazil or whoever, right? And in order to do that, we need to learn their languages. We need to understand their cultures. And so even if you look at it from an America first type, more <laughs> you know, extreme point of view, it's nonsensical that even that kind of political mindset would not see the value in learning other languages, right? I mean, why was the U.S. government throwing millions of dollars during the Cold War at Russian departments all over the country? Right. Because and, they knew it was efficient. They knew right. it was a good use of their resources. And paying for jazz musicians and artists to travel everywhere. It was, right. yeah. Well, you know, this is interesting because um, Again, I've got a bunch of thoughts sort of jam, jammed together here, but you've made some points I haven't thought about. Um, so I'm gonna try to bring a couple threads together and see if I can tie them into something else. Um, I was speaking recently with the chair of politics here, Dr. Joyce Chang, and what we were talking about is like, you know, America is is quickly becoming a second tier nation. It's, a, it's our imperial era is coming to an end. And you, you referenced Trump and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Um, we've done it before. Um, but we've also become increasingly provincial and nationalistic and xenophobic. And so then you look at cutting languages at that same time, but then, and so, so you, what the argument I hear you making is, as, as, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? As we become less the center of the world, that we need to become, to be successful, uh, more multicultural, and we have to know more languages and more cultures. Am I basically getting that right? I, I mean, I think it's an inescapable conclusion to right. reach when you see the way economies are going, the way industries are going, right. uh, the way 
science and technology, everything. Yeah. So and so for me, then I'm thinking, okay, so over here, you're, they're cutting, and I want to come back to languages, you know, in, in a little more depth. But they're they're slashing these programs and languages. At the same time, they cut the Appalachian Studies minor. So a program that's going to teach you about where you are and who you are, your labor history, your environmental history. I'm a huge Stanley Brothers fan, right? You know, the bluegrass, right? And then also not tell you about the rest of the world is, I mean, let me say something super obvious, really problematic, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's my genius moment. But I mean, very limiting in terms of developing citizens, developing entrepreneurs, developing politicians or people that can just understand what's happening in the world they live in and the world around them, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's kind of difficult, again, not to get too political, but it's kind of difficult not to see a political agenda behind these cuts that are happening across the country, right? Because, you know, to a lot of us, a well-educated and well-informed citizenry is the key to a successful nation, a successful economy, yeah. to a meaningful and well-lived life. Yeah. Thomas but, Jefferson, right? He said something like that, too. Right. right. <laughs> If people are well-informed, if people are well-educated, if people are sensitive to people from other backgrounds and other experiences, then they're much harder to divide. They're much harder to atomize and to force into their own very idiosyncratic and sometimes racist, sometimes sexist, sometimes classist concerns because education shows us how we're all connected and how we're all similar and how we're all in it together, yeah. right? That education works in opposition to many people's political agendas, which is division, which is, you know, rendering people, I mean, like yeah. the history of the movement, right? Let's split white workers from black workers and pit them against each other rather than having them unite as a clearly united working class, we'll, we'll use racism yeah. and put them against each other, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's the, the same thing all over again. I teach Mate One on a regular basis, by the way. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> what a great movie. Um, so, you, should visit. You, should visit. Huh? <laughs> you should come visit. I have yeah. a friend who is, uh, would be a great connection for you. Okay, yeah. that sounds great. Um, so, you know... And Martha Nussbaum says almost exactly what you were saying. And it's funny because I was just interviewed by a student journalist and I said pretty much what you said, maybe less eloquently, but he's arguing about why the liberal arts or, you know, explain it to me. But same, you know, like I won't say it again because you said it perfectly. I don't need to mansplain you. Um, so, yeah, I also see an agenda here. And it's, you know, um, going back to the first, I'm uh, sorry, um, Second Bush administration, right? George um, Walker Bush. Um, that report that was generated by the Department of Education that emphasizes, right? And so there does seem to, you know, when you know there's that, you know, Lincoln had a great speech where he's talking about the slave power, and I'm not even going to try to paraphrase the eloquence of Abraham Lincoln, but he's like, you know, if all this is happening, at some point you have to feel like it's it's intentional, right? Right. And right. this undercutting of liberal arts everywhere um, and it's usually based on pragmatic I'm doing air quotes arguments around uh, business decisions it always ends up hitting the thing that is most critical for a functioning democracy right um, so I, I share your concern and, and, and maybe a little bit of healthy justified paranoia I, I do want to ask you with a language department, like were you all like in the language program, were you looking at it and saying, okay, maybe, you know, if, if you have more time, like here's a major we might cut, but here's a major we will cut. Did you have time or opportunity to think about that? Because I'm in that same place, like strategically how to manage, because we, you know, we both know that there's been a big drop off in language enrollments across the country, right? Right, right. So a couple of years ago, the provost office came to us and said, you know, your, your little tiny baby majors aren't working anymore. We want you to retool and reconfigure and, and come up with something new. And, you know, my colleagues in the department worked really, really hard 
and did a national deep dive into different curricula at different places, trying to figure out what was working where, what wasn't working, and maybe coming up with something new. And they came up with something that would have sort of enabled us all to come together and present a face of strength as opposed to really easily split up silos of here's German, here's French, here's Italian, here's Russian, um, into a, a sort of study of world languages and cultures major. And, you know, we presented the plan. Uh, they gave us, uh, I mean, you know, all the bureaucratic steps as a dean, they gave us permission to start the intent to plan, right? Which occurred. And, you know, so we had, we had gone into the system, we had proposed some of these things and we were being told all along, oh, this is great. Keep going, keep going. We really like your plan. And then I think as of maybe January, we, we got this rather sudden email saying, uh, no, just stop. Okay. Put a hold on that. Put a hold on that. And we weren't really sure what that meant. And very quickly, you know, suspicions were aroused and we started to worry and think, oh, oh boy, now it's coming. If they don't like, if they're not letting us go any further with this planning, what does that mean for us? And right. we found out in uh, June, I think it was when we got the first preliminary recommendations from the provost office. So very quick, quickly, we were jolted out of our complacency and, but even, even then when we got the rec preliminary recommendations at that point, it was just, mm, you all need to justify your existence, convince us. And we thought we were, we were well set because by the administration's own data, we make over $800,000 oh, yeah. a year. Yeah, yeah. That was their they, their yeah. data, and they would try to throw it back at us and say, "Oh no, that that figure's not right." And we said, "Oh, okay, well then that's on you." Right. <laughs> Using your numbers, we yeah. didn't just pull that out of the air. I have been and there. So, I've been in those yeah. conversations. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we thought we were fine. We were like, "Oh, okay, we we make the money. We're cheap. We're small. Our faculty we're the cheap are date. yeah. We're the cheap date. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Our faculty are underpaid. Our GTAs make you know a pittance." And, you know, they're, they're doing the yeoman's work of the 101, 102 kind of thing. Um, and we've got this, this idea for uh, an exciting new major. We, we thought we would be okay. And then suddenly, August 11th, we hear in the evening, we're not okay. We're slated for total elimination as yeah. a department. All languages at that point. There were going to be no languages taught by that preliminary recommendation. And that was just absolutely, I, I don't want to sound like Princess Bride here, but inconceivable to <laughs> all of them. Hey, hey, I'm always down with a Princess Bride reference. <laughs> I actually once made my administrative uh, coordinator watch the Princess Bride because she wasn't getting any of my jokes. So, <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> um, well, so, you know, that's doubly frustrating because you said, you know, so they flagged an issue. They invited you into a planning process. You did it. It sounds to me like you came up with a creative idea and then they mm -hmm. completely, uh, um, completely rejected shared governance. Right. And came out and said, now this is what's happening. And and I don't think it's parent, you know, going back to the earlier point. Um, you know, when I look at the cuts and again, there are cross programs and like cutting the master's in public administration makes zero sense to me at all. I don't understand that because uh, that's such a pathway for people in NGOs and state government, right? Um, but it seems to me like they're deciding, you know, we don't need this higher level stuff. We need workforce, right? Yeah. And that feels yeah. like a kind of a forced peonage sort of system if I want to get really yeah. radical on this. But yeah, let me ask you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. So, you you know, so, yeah, so you're in dialogue with deans or provosts or people representing CFOs and they want to have an ROI, return on investment discussion. So you're like, hey, we're making, uh, you know, we're making money for you because we're not, you're not paid well. And we don't have a, you know, we don't have to buy, you know, scanning electron microscopes and things like that. Um, exactly. But then, you know, when you try to make the qualitative arguments. How did that go? What were the kind of responses you got when you're making the arguments around, you know, the whole person and uh, multi, you know, understanding of other cultures, et cetera? So honestly, 
I don't think we got any kind of response to that. And it was, it was sort of like, yeah, it's not, that's not even worth answering. That's beside the point. You see my big um, grin, right? Thank you for confirming all of my experiences. Whenever I get into the qualitative, like people literally roll their eyes, right? It's just like, just because I can't put it on a piece of paper and say, Bobby here now is more empathetic and understands that also people from the Islamic world are human and is less likely to commit a hate crime. It gets nowhere, no traction. No. No, what it came down to was, how are you going to get more majors? How are you going to get more butts in seats? And the $800,000 that you make for us each year is irrelevant. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, yeah. none of the, none of the quality of life arguments that we made, none of the lifelong learning arguments that we made, none of the hundreds of letters and emails that we got from alumni and parents and donors and current students, none of that made a damn bit of difference. Right. And we had, so many, and they were impassioned, they were eloquent, and they were, many of them were from really highly placed, powerful, interesting people who are leading, rewarding, oh. useful, important lives. Yeah, you've know? you had people, a lot of great, successful people. And you know, this yeah. has happened with other schools, Guilford College in North Carolina, the alum and the community launched a, a counter response to the plans to cut programs and they backed off the um, the women's college in Virginia. I can't remember the name of it. Do they were going to close it? Do you know which one I'm talking about? It's like four years ago, pre-COVID, I think. It was a was, women's was college. I want to say, no. Draw the blank. But anyways, the alum came together and, right. and said no. And sweet I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of hubris and your President Guy and simply deciding that, you know, I mean, he's got to be supported. And, you, and as you, of course, in your leadership roles, you saw where power resides, right? These boards and yeah. Um, okay. So let me, let me track off in another direction. Is that okay? I find myself increasingly intrigued by this RPK group <laughs> and their role at different institutions like the Vermont system in Kansas. How transparent was your university? And again, anything you're uncomfortable with, just let me know. Um, about how transparent were they about the role of the RPK group in assessing and making recommendations about the future of programs? Um. I, I will say not at all transparent about that. And, and I'll, I'll give you, give you an example of, you know, often President Gee or the provost would, would tell us, oh, well, they're only consulting. They're just, you know, they're looking at data because we don't have people who can look at data Seriously? the right way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> at a university. Um, which many of my colleagues said, um, hello, I look at data all the time. Uh, but they would uh, publish then some of the, on, on the Academic Transformation website. And I remember one of the first things that was posted there as an example of how well RPK got to know our campus, they called us University of West Virginia. Oh, God. Which, yeah, I mean... Do your basic homework. What's the name of the place you're working at? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> West Virginia University. And, you know, people get a little snippy when you get the name of their uh, employer wrong, uh, particularly when it's the flagship of an entire state. Yeah. And the flagship I, of an entire state. I watch college football, so I, I knew. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's just kind of an example of this carpetbagger, which is a very loaded term in West Virginia. Sure. Uh, this bagger attitude we're going to parachute in we're going to tell people what to do and then we're going to hop right out of there and move on to the next high paying consulting gig right. and do the same terrible justice to people uh, across the country you know so woe betide anyone else whose institution is is employing rpk because uh it, it doesn't bode well for for your college or your university i i would say not in the 
way. I, I don't want to say that in a libelous way that RPK is going to come back and sue me or something. No, I think uh, I'll go ahead and say it. I, I'll say that I, it's clear that RPK group is brought in with specific outcomes in mind and that they become the lever by which decisions are made to cut programs and um, and predominantly liberal arts, because I'm I, watching like Emporia State and other Kansas schools. I have a, a colleague, old friend, who's trying to get out of Kansas because uh, they can see what's happening there. Um, and then, and you make the point really well in another quote that you know these cuts are, are denigrating the quality of the university, but also impacting West Virginia society. And it would be really hard to come back from that, right? That's that's the problem because you know when when I've served on search committees and I've helped recruit people, you know one of one of the things that people people who come to WVU are usually willing to forego some of the higher salaries that they might get elsewhere, right? But one of the points for recruitment has not only been, you know, the beautiful nature and the access to the outdoors and the beautiful setting in West Virginia, but also I think, you know, we, we tend to recruit faculty and staff who care about the mission of WVU and who care about the kinds of students who come to WVU, whether they're from West Virginia or Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, Ohio, Virginia, a lot of the places we tend to, to pull from. And, you know, I think it's Can I read another quote real quick? Yeah. It's from yeah. you. Uh, it's, uh, this is, I was trying to decide which one to start with, but the quote is, uh, I love this place. I grew up in Morgantown. I went to w WVU. I chose to come back here to have a meaningful career and to give back to my community and my state. And I love my students. And honestly, it just kills me to know that after May 2024, I won't get to do that anymore. And that's a pattern I saw with multiple faculty. There's a there's a real alignment with service to that community, right? So sorry, I just wanted to get that in there. No, no, I mean I think I think that's true. I think it, it's the kind of place and I to be fair, I think that was what attracted President Gee to come back here in the first place was he saw in WVU the kind of place that he could make a meaningful difference and leave a lasting legacy. I just think that in the past couple of years, his conception of his legacy has shifted dramatically. Interesting. I, I truly believe that he still believes that he's leaving a positive lasting legacy. Um, I just think a lot of us beg to differ about that conclusion. And but, your time as an advisor to him, does that sort of inform what you're, what you're saying right now? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think he, he, I think he genuinely felt strongly about coming back here. I think he saw it as the capstone to his career, a, a place where he could really make a difference and help people. Um, and I'm not really sure when that when that changed or when he began to reconceive the way he considers helping people, because I would argue, and I think most of my colleagues and I know all of my students would argue, what he's doing now is not helping this place and the legacy he is now establishing for himself is not the positive one that he would have had he not chosen to go down this path. Right. Right. That's, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, there's a couple other questions I want to get to. We're starting to run a little bit out of time, but we got a little time left. Um, and then I want to make sure if there's something we didn't get to that you, that you want to talk about, you can do that. Um, did you find that your university, a lot of my questions are loaded. They're coming out of my own experience. That's why I start saying it. I'm grinning so hard. Um, did you find that your university worked hard to market and support your programs? Like, you know, like getting the word out, come here and learn about Russian Slavic studies? No, yeah. not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, the people, the marketing folks and recruiting folks focused on some of the, you know, the big ticket items that, that do draw, you know, we have a, a really highly ranked um, forensic and investigative sciences program, for instance, um, that the administration loves to brag about. And, you know, that does genuinely recruit from all over the country, if not the world. Um, and I get it that resources are finite and not everybody can have the same number of resources. Uh, but 
those of us, I think, in the arts and humanities have been particularly starved of resources. Um, and and in part, it's it's sort of like you're in an abusive relationship and you just keep getting abused and you don't fight back and you don't push back because you're you just keep your head down and you just want to keep doing it and you want to keep doing it. And all of us in my department wanted to, to keep doing our jobs and wanted to keep serving our students, even though we make less than our colleagues across the country. And even though our teaching loads are higher and our service loads are astronomically higher. Um, but I think that, you know, if they had done some interesting recruiting around arts and humanities and had framed it as, you know, what I believe in the depths of my soul, which is that higher education isn't a trade school, not that there's anything wrong with a trade school. No. It's just different. It's different. And part of what that difference is, lies in the tenets of a traditional liberal arts education, which gives you breadth and depth, which helps you become a lifelong learner, which gives you critical thinking skills, which gives you the tools that you will need to be a successful person, regardless yeah. of your career track. And I think that, you know, those are really easy ads to make because when you, when you come and you cut an ad about our jazz program, which has been cut, when yeah. you cut an ad about, yeah, no, it's insane, or Appalachian studies, right? right. Or, right studies or what have you when you cut an ad about some of the really awesome amazing things that are fun and that are photogenic and that are engaging and that would make a hell of a tiktok uh but they didn't do that right no. they they saw other things and you know they they preferred to focus on those things right and you know you get what you pay for Right. Well, and I want to take issue with your domestic abuse analogy, because for the liberal arts, there's never a honeymoon phase. True. True. <laughs> yeah. so, but um, so this is the narrative in, in university leadership everywhere. Right. Uh, I'm not picking any university in particular, but what what they say is, well, the students want STEM. The students want engineering. They want health, allied health fields. It's like, yeah, but. Maybe for two years, we could just advertise the shit out of languages and history and maybe see what happens, right? Because it's just like um, Detroit was like, Americans want Humvees. It's like, no, right. you're just advertising. You're not advertising small cars. And right. Right. I mean, anyone who understands American society knows the degree to which marketing drives consumer, and I hate to call education a consumer decision, but drives decision-making, let's call it that. Mm -hmm. And that's the frustrating thing for me is to, to hear that, to say back what I just said to you, which I do, and then it just never lands. It's like, well, let's just pick one. Let's, let's see what we could do with philosophy if we really marketed the value of philosophy. Um, and not just, you know, it's one thing for universities to market a program, but as a culture, I mean, there's a zeitgeist right now, right? And it's it's very much around, you know, applied fields. And right. but the other thing, too, and, I, and I, I'm a big critic of um, American exceptionalism, right? I'm an American historian. But... Uh, I remember, so I was at Catholic universities for years as associate dean and dean, and because there's always this discussion about like, you know, how many faculty should be Catholic and things like that, and theology. Um, I read um, Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, which is Pope John Paul II's um, encyclical, if I remember correctly, on, on the liberal arts. And I had read the American bishops, you know, what the American bishops took out of that was half of the faculty at a Catholic university have to be Catholic. But when I read it, I was like, oh, my God, this is a beautiful defense of the value of the liberal arts. And what I'm getting at, Lisa, is we've lost that aspirational rhetoric, that the aspirational thinking about that 
that again, I don't want to be, you know, an imperialist or get into American exceptionalism, but is one of the reasons everybody from all around the world came here for their education, right? And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's just yeah. painful. Yeah, it is. It is because, you know, you can talk about, well, in Europe, higher education is paid for, so it's a lot easier. Well, yeah, but the tiny, tiny number of people who are allowed access right. to higher education is very, very small. And our our much more egalitarian system, particularly in the state universities and the land-grant universities, that ideally should mean that everybody who wants right. to should have access and it shouldn't be seen as you need this in order to pursue a particular career or because your parents want you, you know, to be successful, I right. say with air quotes, that you need to study business or you need to study engineering. Well, what if your passion is piano? What right. if you're really a sculptor and you want to do that, right? It doesn't mean that you can't leave the university having done that major and get another kind of job, but continue to be a sculptor and be successful in that and to be a happy person, which God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> I, think, I think it really is, it comes back to, we need a cultural shift. We need a reimagining and a reevaluation of what is important to us. And I see this happening in my students. I see students stepping back often from what their parents dictate and say, oh no, you need to, you need to major in finance or in accounting because I, you need to make money, right? I see a lot of kids who are much more in touch with their own mental health, who are much more in touch with their own identity and are interested in further explorations of that identity. I think a lot of that for them is tied up with exploring subjects and sticking to their passions and finding new passions rather than choosing a safe career oriented route with a return on investment. And I think that we also saw that here at WVU to kind of bring it full circle for you. We saw that here at WVU because we saw an overwhelming activation of students on campus who came out for rallies, who wrote us letters. All of us who were affected by the cuts can talk about the students who have made us cry with their support for us. Very powerful. Publicly, who have rallied, who have taken it upon themselves to protest and to work really hard to preserve their education and to, to maintain what they see as important. And that's honestly what's getting most of us through day to day is those students and even the ones who didn't come out and protest, but still see the value in what we teach and in what we have to offer and what that will mean to society more broadly in five years or 10 years when these people grow up and they go out into the world and they make changes because they saw these mistakes. That's, yeah. that's what you have to hope for. Yeah, um, and that, that's very eloquent. Thank you. I, you know, and by cutting, you know, you describe the student comes in saying they think they're going to be engineering, but then they discover they want to play the piano. But by cutting stuff, more and more of those programs, those opportunities are lost, and they'll they'll never even know that they have a chance to do that. And there exactly. seems to be a certain level of intentionality to that. And then um, also, you know, a couple of points you made. The last two shows, in both shows, we talked about joy. And the liberal arts, uh, and also uh, two shows ago, um, Drew Lopenzina, who's east of you at Old Dominion University, talked about living many lives, right? And the reality is, given the challenges we're facing currently, and that are going to be ramping up with the uh, climate change, which I teach, um, uh, they're going to live many lives whether they want to or not. But opportunities, because I see the same thing you're saying. The students are like, wait, you know, I, I want to. I want to major in three things. I want to try this. I want to try. I had a student I talked to today was like, what's the best way to try to learn as many areas as possible? And we talked about that some. So I agree with you. I see students and we need to find ways to support and encourage that as much as possible. Yes. yes. All right. So here's the, the, the final question. Lisa, what's next for you? What do you, where, you know, you're, you're not going to be there after, after May. Is that correct? 
Right, May 9th, 2024. So what do you do after that? Um, if that's okay to ask you. Um... No, it's, it's okay to ask me. If it's okay for me to say I'm not really sure. Um, sure. I'm, I am, my plan right now is to leave academia, which hurts in a lot of ways because this, besides wanting to grow up and be Indiana Jones, this is basically the only thing I ever wanted to do. Right. Um, and I cannot even wrap my head around the idea that I won't be in a classroom with my students right. after May. Yeah. Uh, but I, a lot of people have, have suggested, and I, I guess this is the, the direction I'm leaning, um, is something that will enable me to continue to advocate for things that I think are important, whether that's education, whether that's reproductive rights, whether that's fighting climate change, whether that's access to the ballot. Um, but, you know, I'm probably looking for a nonprofit uh, kind of gig where I can continue to advocate for something that that is important to me because I can't imagine doing a job that I don't look forward to every day because I've been doing a job every day for almost 20 years here at WVU that I wake up in the morning and I'm excited about and I look yeah. forward to and I just can't imagine not having that anymore. Yeah, I'm so sorry. It's really terrible. Um, we're rooting for you. Um, I, I hope it works out. And, you know, you've been a fantastic guest today. And uh, is there a last, I mean, you just so much what you had to say, I think is so important and relevant and eloquently expressed. Do you want to leave us with a one last thought? Sometimes we say like, is there a novel you want to talk about? But maybe it's, you get the last word. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> okay. A novel that I, um, so in teaching Russian literature, since Russia reinvaded Ukraine full scale in February, uh, 2022, a lot of us in the field have kind of reevaluated how we teach Russian literature and Russian culture. Yeah. Um, but I, I still think there's value in a lot of, in a lot of those texts. And I guess I would say, I would love it if everybody who heard this today listened or read um, Mikhail Bulgakov's Master and Margarita. Uh, I don't which even is know cool. that. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, Bulgakov had some problematic things to say vis-a-vis -vis Ukrainians, but we'll put that aside for, for the moment. Um, it's a novel that takes place in the early 20th century in the Soviet Union uh, and involves three main storylines. Um, one of them is The Devil Comes to Moscow uh, <laughs> and wreaks havoc. Uh, another is uh, a sort of romance between the master and Margarita. And the third, which is interwoven with the other two, is uh, the story of Pontius Pilate. Imagine, yeah. And meeting uh, who Bulgakov calls Yeshua, uh, as opposed to Jesus. Uh, and... I'm thinking of like the Grand Inquisitor scene from Brothers Karamazov. Is there an intersection there? Or... There's okay. a lot of influence there, yeah. Okay, definitely. okay. That would be a great book to, to read, uh, to remind people that literature can be fun. It can be challenging. It can change your life. It can change your, your outlook. Um, and... I guess I would say keep learning and don't let the bastards get you down. I love that. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate this. Awesome. I appreciate the opportunity and, and the conversation. Right. Thank you.